morning, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Medical University of South Carolina Science Cafe via podcast. I am your host, Loretta Lynch-Reichert, Director of Research Communications here at MUSC. Today, our guest is Dr. Peter Kalibas, an MUSC Distinguished University Professor in the Department of Neurosciences. Dr. Kalavas's research has been at the forefront of addiction science, recognized around the world. Welcome back to Science Cafe, Dr. Kalavas. Thank you, Loretta. It's a pleasure to be here. In 2017, we were privileged to have you and your wife, social worker Sue King, join forces at Science Cafe to explore the neurobiology of addiction and what the community can do with this understanding to better protect our children. You both presented compelling work on addiction and changes in the brain, how it happens, especially with regard to adolescence, and exploring how to help addicts fix their brain and regain control of their lives. That was three years ago. What have you discovered since that time? Well, uh, one of the primary discoveries that we keep making over and over again is that uh, the disease, like all neuropsychiatric disorders, uh, the disease of addiction is substantially more complicated in terms of its impact on the brain than we would have imagined. The brain itself is more complicated and uh, the impact of the drugs to change the brain is uh, much more complicated. I can give some examples of things that we've discovered at a biological level. And then what I thought I would do is chat a little bit about um, some new clinical perspectives that have had evolved out of um, communication between the basic sciences and the clinical sciences. As you're well aware here at MUSC, there are a lot of um, outstanding world-class uh, clinical neuroscientists in the field of addiction as well. That sounds so wonderful. It, Please start. Sure. Um, yeah, at a basic level, um, there you're familiar with the concept of a synapse and how neurons communicate with each other. And we used to think that that was that was the essence of how the brain functioned. That was, if you will, the, the microchip in the brain that allowed us to do everything that we do. Um, and what we've realized is that that synapse has a lot of help. And in fact, the helper cells, neuroglia, and the areas around the cells, which turn out to contain lots of molecules, are extremely important in keeping the synapses balanced. And so what we're starting to discover is that the uh, drugs of abuse uh, are impacting not just synaptic transmission, which is what there's been the last 20 years of study on, but it's really starting to imbalance uh, areas around the synapse that keep the synapse balanced. And so what you find is that it's not so much the synapses don't work, they just don't regulate as well. And as a result, in some cases, they can't learn as well, which accounts for why uh, addicts have, uh, have more difficulty with learning new situations to change their, uh, their behavior, their addictive behavior. Um, the imbalance can also lead to uh, long-term alterations in mood and emotion. And it's, that makes it all sound so hopeless. And I'll talk a little bit about um, how we can use that to um, assist in substance use disorder and help people that are suffering from this disorder um, move back into what we call homeostasis. Um, the other big advance has been in uh, 
at least at the basic level, working with um, rats that have been using drugs and mice, is uh, in vivo cell imaging. So what we can do now is we have these mini cameras, very small cameras with a lens that you can stick inside the brain and we can actually watch the brain working at a cellular level. So we can watch these synapses fire. We can watch the synapses actually change in response to learning to take a drug like heroin. Um, and they don't change in response to learning to take, for example, sucrose. So we're really, for the first time, starting to be able to actually watch the brain as it performs at a cellular level. So you're aware, and we can talk a little bit about that later if you'd like, about the neuroimaging work that's being done uh, in humans and in animals, but the humans is the most relevant. And that is um, the, the neuroimaging work in humans is at a very large level. So you can't really see how the brain itself at a molecular level has changed in response to drugs. You can see how it's changed in a more global level, and we can talk about that in a little bit. The final, from our perspective um, as researchers, uh, thing that I would like to bring up is <clears throat> arose from us doing clinical trials with a substance called uh, N-acetylcysteine. So this is a modified amino acid. And back in 2017, we had our fingers crossed that this was going to be a highly impactful compound in substance use disorder. There, were, there was a very positive trial that came out of MUSC uh, with adolescents and um, cannabis abuse. And it decreased the amount of cannabis use by adolescents. And there were other positive indications from other trials. Well, since that time, uh, a large nationwide trial with this compound, <clears throat> there are five sites, I believe, um, it failed to mm -hmm. suppress cannabis use. And so we've been studying that and trying to figure out why it works at adolescence, doesn't work in uh, the, the global population. Um, which included mostly adults, not adolescents. When you actually went back in and examined the adolescents, it appeared that the compound was successful. Um, so you know, what is the difference there? Part of it is, is that they are just haven't been using drugs as long. Part of it is, is they don't have it as readily available. So this got us thinking about what we've really discovered in the basic sciences, which is that the drug is good for craving. And if you think about what craving is, it's a component of substance use disorder. It's not the entire disorder. And so it turns out adolescents who often are in a somewhat more controlled environment um, in other words, they don't necessarily have as ready access to cannabis as, say, an adult who's been using cannabis for 20 years. Um, they have to crave. So craving becomes a big part of why they're going to relapse. If you take a 40 or 50-year-old uh, 
person who's been suffering most of their life from substance use disorder, they have built a world around uh, friends who will drop by with the drug. They might have drug at home in almost all situations. And as a result, um, those people relapse when they've taken this drug because craving is not as important. The drug is so readily available. And we realized the importance of that because in one trial, uh, about 25% of the people started abstinent, meaning they hadn't taken the drug for at least two weeks prior to um, their drug of abuse, prior to starting the trial with N-acetylcysteine. And what we found is those people did not relapse. And so <clears throat> those were probably people who had already started to bring some control to their life if they'd been abstinent for two weeks. So this led us to doing a trial with um, veterans. Uh, it was a combination of post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorder. As you may be aware, many uh, people suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, also have comorbid uh, substance use disorder. And if you have both, it's very difficult, very, very difficult actually to treat either one independently. So they're very intertwined. And maybe in another podcast, we can go into some of the biology that causes those two clinical uh, situations to be, uh, to co-express. <clears throat> but what we found it, amazingly is that the N-acetylcysteine completely wiped out post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Wow. Yeah, so we had a huge effect there. And this is a trial that's being headed by Sudi Back here at mm -hmm. MUSC. And I know she's now, we completed the pilot trial and published that. And now there's a much larger trial that she's, she's running. And what that caused us to realize is that <clears throat> craving is what we would call an endophenotype. So it's a symptom of substance use disorder. It is not substance use disorder per se. Well, it's also a symptom, a very profound symptom actually, of post-traumatic stress disorder. So one of the real triggers in post-traumatic stress disorder is that the person cannot stop thinking about the traumatic event that they had encountered that led to the post-traumatic stress disorder. So for example, it was a combat experience or rape uh, as two examples. Oh, when the person gets into a situation that might remind them of this episode in their life, the episode comes crashing back, creates a state of high anxiety and they can't control it. And in the field of uh, people who study post-traumatic stress disorder, that's called intrusive thinking. And so what we've come to realize is that what N-acetylcysteine is doing is it's working at a neurobiological level and some of the things I was talking about um, with uh, the more complicated synapses, it works at that level to restore circuit function so that thoughts don't intrude as much as they did before. You still think the thought, but it doesn't intrude and become a dominant feature of your behavior um, and in the case of PTSD, create 
uh, a high state of anxiety to where you're behaviorally not functioning as well, or in the state case of addiction, it would cause you to really crave the drug. And if you didn't have drug readily available to go out and seek the drug. So those are the two, the little closer look at neurobiology that new technologies have allowed us um, to, to have of how the brain is adapting and how going back and forth with this N-acetylcysteine, we're starting to realize that probably the best treatments for addiction for substance use disorder are going to be combination treatments um, where you, you attack the different symptoms, possibly with different compounds or different forms of psychosocial intervention. That is very promising. I mean, uh, uh, it brings up a whole world of opportunity for folks. Um, and I, I, I'm really amazed. I had no idea this was happening. So kudos to you and the team in uh, neurosciences and psychiatry. Um, so let me see if I understand correctly. With adolescence, um, that craving is there, but also the peer pressure, uh, if I understand you correctly. Craving is just one symptom of addiction. So if they are taking, taken away from an environment that encourages them to use um, uh, drugs or alcohol or, or whatever, I'm assuming alcohol is also part of an, uh, the yeah, kind of addiction so. you deal with, yeah. If you take them out of that environment, are they more likely then to have a hopeful future? So as near as we can tell, um, yes, that would be the case. I mean, that type of experiment, um, and especially in combination with a, a compound that uh, suppresses intrusive thinking or craving, um, has, has not actually been done. So to my knowledge, anyway, that, that type of trial has not been done. Um, what is people are starting to do more is people have to be abstinent to enter a trial. And just the nature of abstinence implies, meaning that they haven't had the drug for a while, implies that they have some control over their environment already. Maybe they're not, they're trying not to see their friends that use drugs. Um, but the bottom line is, is the answer to your question, I think is yes, that if you, um, a person is removed from the environment, they're not going to encounter the things that would trigger craving. Um, friends that they, they might see or um, you know, situations that they would get into routinely where um, a alcohol or cannabis might be available. And then taking an acetylcysteine, it will suppress the intrusive nature whenever they think about it, because not all craving is driven just by environmental cues. It's also driven um, internally. So you start thinking about uh, getting friends, and that can cause you to crave. You'll start thinking about the drug. And then if you can't regulate that, which is the issue, <clears throat> then it becomes an intrusive thought and it becomes to dominate uh, your behavior and cause you to relapse. So it's a combination of environment, and we believe that this, this compound, um, N-acetylcysteine, the combination of the environment and N-acetylcysteine would be the best approach. And which is why I think it works better with adolescents. Um, their environment is, is more in flux. It's in a way 
I know parents won't agree with this. <laughs> I had teenagers, uh, but in a way, their environment is more controlled. They still so, show for at night, et cetera. You know. that, so that kind of leads to a question uh, maybe I should have started with. Why is it that some teens uh, that are um, introduced to addictive substances, why are some teens able to walk away from it and other teens are Im almost immediately addicted? Is that a fair statement to begin with? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and uh, there's no clean, clear-cut answer. So you're asking the question, uh, the jargon we use is resilience. So why are some people resilient and other people are, are less resilient? to these exposures. And uh, there's there's genetic components. Um, that's been most clearly studied with alcohol, but it's, it's most uh, genetic studies find that there is a genetic component. <clears throat> so some people are genetically more vulnerable, but the genetic vulnerability is not overwhelming. In other mm -hmm. words, there's a huge inter interaction with the environment. Okay. And so some people with genetic vulnerability will never become um, addicted to substances and others are, are more susceptible. Um, exactly why one group is, is more susceptible and another group is more resilient <clears throat> is, is a very difficult question. One is side effects. So some people are very uh, sensitive to side effects. So for example, the ataxia that you get with alcohol, that's, some people find that extremely aversive. What is that? I'm um, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. When you, you, you lose motor control. Ah, okay. Yeah, you do, your motor systems aren't working as well. And some people respond to that as a, that's a very aversive event. Uh, when you think of cannabis, some people respond uh, to cannabis with the, the loss of control over your thoughts um, becomes aversive. They may have paranoid thoughts. So they have a vulnerability there and many people that will be their limit. Cocaine, uh, an example would be the, the sense of anxiety that the psychostimulants produce. Uh, many people ultimately find that aversive and just stop taking the drug or really cut back to the point where they're not, it's not going to interfere as greatly in their life. Um, but right now, we don't really have a good way to fingerprint vulnerability versus resilience. So there's some interesting studies being done uh, here at MUSC. It's being, uh, they're being pioneered by Heixing Liu. Yes. So he's in the Department of Neuroscience here, and uh, he arrived from Harvard maybe two years ago. And his his expertise, and he's absolutely world class in this, is um, imaging resting state brains. So what that means is a person gets put in a scanner, magnetic resonance imaging scanner, and they watch brain function, but they don't actually give the person any task. You just let the person free range. Mm -hmm. And what you can see is that there are a number of circuits in the brain. And he's, it takes thousands and thousands of scans 
of people with well-diagnosed disorders, such as depression or substance use disorder. And you can start seeing that there's tendencies for certain circuits to be stronger and certain circuits to be weaker, depending on the psychiatric disorder. So it's, I don't think I would say that there's an absolute thumbprint for each disorder, but we, for example, in the case of substance use disorder, a weakness in the connection between the frontal cortex, which is decision-making, and what we call the striatum, which is the habit area mm -hmm. of the brain, where the brain takes thoughts and puts them into action. And there's a weakness there. So it's a fairly well-documented, not just here at MUSC, but at other institutions as well now, that people that have substance use disorder often have a, a weakness in connectivity in that circuit. And so to some extent, that's a substance, that's a, a potential biomarker. Uh, the problem is, is it's is the old chicken and egg problem. Mm. <clears throat> they already have substance use disorder <laughs> when right. they get imaged. Um, and there's been some twin studies that have shown that uh, if one person has it, uh, the another the sibling is more likely to have that. And so, and also siblings are more likely to have substance use disorder. So there's some, some reason to think that it may be not just something that's produced by the drug, the weakening of uh, what we call cortical striatal function, <clears throat> but it could be um, actually something that is uh, more generic to the, to the person. That is, I mean, it's eye-opening. Um, I know I've done a little reading myself on the neuroimaging, and you see a lot of stuff in the popular press about such things as looking at the brain, um, let's say when they when the patient sees cocaine or, or um, cannabis or mm -hmm. sugar. And I'm wondering, are they making too, are they being too simplistic when they sh share that sugar can be just as addictive as an, a, as a uh, controlled substance? What, what's your thought on that? Um, the reason I ask is because I wonder if your con the research that you do would leave, lead into other things such as weight management. And I mean, we all have addictions to something. So I'm just really curious how your work could move uh, other areas forward. No, that's that's a really interesting question and um, a very popular question about um, how does <clears throat> substance use disorder translate into uh, what appear to be addictive behaviors uh, for other more natural compounds, um, sweet compounds, carbohydrates, etc. So, uh, because I'm a basic scientist, like training and by almost all the work we've done, we collaborate with our clinical colleagues. Uh, we've tried to set up addiction models uh, with high fat foods, mm -hmm. um, with just regular sucrose pellets, you know, equivalent of a Milky Way bar or something. And, you know, a certain, interestingly, a subpopulation of rats will gain weight. Most won't, but some huh. will eat eat the uh, um, uh, so the high fat pellets 
to the point where they gain weight. And they have some of the characteristics in their brain that we find with, um, say, an animal that's been using cocaine, but not, not really as nearly as remarkable as what an addictive drug causes in the brain. That is fascinating. We actually use that as a control. Hmm. So if we get an effect by, let's say, heroin on one of these synapses or a circuit, and it's not happening with our sucrose use, so an animal that goes in and takes sucrose every day, um, then we assume that that's a true addictive trait and that everything else is not so much. So it's a it's an assumption we make to try to pull out the things that are related more to substance use mm-hmm. from the use of, of highly palatable foods. So does that mean the highly palatable foods are, are not addictive? Um, not really, they're not as addictive. Okay. I so think that's <laughs> the safest thing you can say. We've got our the circuits that are set up in the brain to seek and use food are very resilient and you know so necessary to life. <clears throat> the adaptations to the, that circuitry that opioids produce, um, that's not a natural process. Mm-hmm. So we're not as protected endogenously from something like opioids as we would be from food and so the systems can get out of balance from an addictive drug much more quickly and from our observations um, much more thoroughly with an addictive drug than it will with um, a natural substance um, like sucrose okay that makes sense the body needs certain things and so if i understand you correctly food as being a part of um, our life support um, can be better balanced even when it becomes addictive as opposed to um, these substances that are not really part of the natural um, life cycle. Does that make sense? That, I mean, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, no, that's, that's, how, that's how we think about it, is that the, <clears throat> the, the drugs directly influence these the linkage between the frontal cortex and the habit circuitry in the brain. Food does not. Mm. So people can still develop, and this may, I'm sure there are vulnerabilities associated with this, um, intrusive thinking about Mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. So that intrusive thinking characteristic can definitely occur. Um, It can occur with us because intrusive thoughts are not necessarily abnormal. Um, sometimes it's important to have thoughts intrude right. they guide daily behavior. And uh, it's when you lose control or the ability to regulate those intrusive thoughts. And I think um, something like highly palatable foods can create that, uh, that intrusive behavior, intrusive thoughts and, and behavior, um, but they don't necessarily have access to really um, really dramatically changing um, the, the circuitry and the synaptic topography the way uh, addictive drugs do. Okay. Um, 
my next question, just moving a little bit away from adolescence, but um, kind of parallel to it. So, you know, we all know COVID-19 is, is uh, just a very compelling feature of our world today. And another, again, popular media uh, article I've been reading about is um, faced with these challenges, a lot of adults are now seeing themselves getting engaged in addictive behaviors, you know, uh, drinking more, that's been the predominant thing I see in the media, subsequently or previously uh, had no issues with it. So my question to you is, for those folks who never had an issue with uh, uh, substance abuse, but now find themselves in an environment that's really um, almost like, I guess, PTSD, you're seeing adults um, drinking a lot more. Are those people prone, drinking a lot more, maybe uh, smoking cannabis or, or whatever a lot more, are those people prone to a long-term addiction cycle? Or is this just, would you suggest these people who have never had the issue previously, um, are they, is it, will it be easier for them to pull themselves away from these substances? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, and I understand, and it's a it's a good and challenging question because hard data is not going to be easy to come by. the The data that we do have, the information is that these drugs, the more you use, the higher the quantity on a daily basis, <clears throat> um, the more your brain is going to change. Mm. There's no question about it. Your, your brain will adapt to these substances, just like it adapts to all sorts of things. Um, it, in fact, as you're implying, the use of substances is an adaptive response mm -hmm. to the COVID-19 situation where there's an increase in stress and there's boredom in some people. You know, So it's this combination would cause people to seek out uh, the, the stimulation from drugs or the um, attenuation of stress that a drug, especially like alcohol, which has anxiolytic qualities, um, would bring. The higher the quantity, the more your brain is going to change. We talked earlier about some people are more resilient to this change. Um, nobody's immune mm -hmm. to this change. And so the higher the quantity, the more likely you are to develop substance use disorder. And there's, I don't think that there's anybody, there's no superhumans out there that are 100% resistant to developing intrusive thinking about, oh, I'd really like a beer right now, or to just start developing these, these behaviors. Right, right. And <clears throat> Again, there's some people are more resilient and can control it to a deeper level than others, but eventually they become a part of your life and you start to miss them if they go away and you develop intrusive thinking about them. So the increase that we're seeing is a, a danger, mm -hmm. not a wipeout. You know, the alcohol is among the least it's there's a lot of alcohol addiction that's i'm not trying to say that it's not a problem but it's not cocaine or heroin or opioids it's not as addictive as those substances where would you see where 
public health could be useful for us? Yeah, so my own, my own um, <clears throat> sense is that there is a, so there's a couple of things uh, from a basic way that we handle our research on addictive substances. So the FDA is, it's relapse prevention only. Mm. So if, if your comp, if your drug treatment or your trial or your TMS, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation, whatever, if it does not decrease, if it does not cause, if it does not inhibit relapse significantly, it's considered a failure. Mm -hmm. Reduce use, that doesn't count. Now it does for alcohol and, and I believe smoking as well. So those are two legal substances, but we're very hung up when it comes to the illegal drugs on somebody going absolutely abstinent because the drugs are illegal. And so abstinence is the only clinical outcome that is acceptable. And there are a lot of treatments out there that reduce use. Mm -hmm. We already discussed just a second ago, reducing use reduces harm and allows the person to develop alternate behaviors, allows the person to, to, to seek help and actually develop the cognitive control to remove themselves from the, the environment that is allowing them such ready access mm-hmm. to the drugs. So it gives, it allows the less a person uses the drug, the more opportunity they have to control their drug use. So I think that's one big mistake that the uh, FDA is, is really responsible for that. And so there are so many failed trials uh, in the psychiatric diseases in general, but um, in particular in substance use <clears throat> because of this criterion when there are probably are compounds that are do have almost no side effects, if any, um, that would be helpful. Um, and they, they've been shown to be helpful. They've reduced uh, cocaine use, just not significantly prevented people from uh, using it at all. They didn't create abstinence. So that's, that's one side. The other side is uh, to really realize that you're dealing with substance use disorder, and we've met, I mentioned this earlier, um, to realize that you're dealing with a, a complex set of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And in some people, one set of symptoms is really the driving force. And in other people, other sets of symptoms. With some drugs, one set of symptoms is the driving more of a driving force than others. And the, on, for the latter, you can think of opioids. So a major driving force of opioid abuse is the withdrawal symptoms are so profound that people, they'll drive people to seek the drug. That's not as uh, prominent with other drugs like, like cannabis or even the psychostimulants. There is a withdrawal syndrome but it's not as, as profound. So people can regulate it a little bit better. So you want to really, with opioids in particular, a therapy that targeted the withdrawal syndrome would be uh, very useful. And in fact, that's what the therapies are. You basically take compounds that blunt the withdrawal syndrome. They happen to be opioids as well. They're just opioids 
<clears throat> that are easier to manage, like methadone, buprenorphine. Um, so that's that's one line that of treatment that is not you can't necessarily translate that to other addictive drugs. We mentioned the the endophenotype, as we call it, the symptom of intrusive thinking. So targeting intrusive thinking will work for some people. It, it looks like it works well with adolescents. <clears throat> it doesn't work with people that have been abusing cannabis for 20 years. Right. So realizing that you have these subpopulations where different characteristics of substance use disorder are dominant forces um, in driving their, their relapse uh, will allow you to, to shape the therapies uh, more effectively. And of course, to do that, you need a better infrastructure of for therapy. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and can I... that's, that's something that's not, not very prevalent. For us okay. to set up a halfway house to right. do trials on absent people is, uh, is very difficult it... to find that. There are countries, as we've known previously, that that uh, that allow addicted persons to get into a methadone clinic or to get clean needles or or to um, uh, get those drugs that will uh, maybe dampen their craving um, somewhat. So is that a, is that an American issue, public health issue, or or who's doing it well across the world? I guess is my question. Um, um, I don't think any country on the planet feels that it has substance use disorder under control mm. and they have it, they have it worked out entirely. Yes, there are uh, countries that are uh, more open uh, about substance use disorder. And so they can do things like needle exchange programs without uh, a lot of, um, negative social feedback mm -hmm. on, on that particular mechanism. Um, so the United States has issues along those lines. Uh, the United States is more wealthy and it, it takes money to buy addictive drugs, whether it's alcohol or uh, you know mm -hmm. heroin. Mm -hmm. And that contributes greatly uh, to why Americans turn to addictive substances is because they can afford it. Um, that's not to say that poor countries don't have substance use disorder as well. They definitely do. <clears throat> but that's 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 part of our problem as well. And we're we aren't mitigating it with um, with the proper education and uh, therapy infrastructure. Understood. Do you see a difference regarding gender uh, as it relates to addiction? Um, I know that's not quite your forte, but there are so many differences between men and women when it comes to uh, healthcare. How about addiction? Yeah, you're right. It's not, um, it's not a hundred, we don't study that in great detail. I, I don't at a, at a human level, we look for um, sex differences in our rodent models. And, to be honest, most of the things that we find are extremely subtle. Um, however, there are some remarkable differences. Um, but if we back up, men and women develop substance use disorder. 
So mm -hmm. the fundamental, <laughs> the fundamental outcome of using drugs <clears throat> is the same. They become addicted. The brains change. What people are finding is there's possibly different interactions with stress. Um, in other words, the, the biology of stress is different in men and women, mm -hmm. and that can lead to differences in, in how the drugs are used, in what, what kind of susceptibilities they might have to different drugs. Um, but that's really, um, <clears throat> there's still, to my mind, still a lot of hand-waving along those lines. The exciting part, I think, is that you're finding that, at least at the basic level, um, the outcomes are, look the same behaviorally, but sometimes the pathways, in other words, the cellular pathways that females take is different from the way males take. By the time it integrates into a behavior, yes, they're still going to go get the drug, but there's different molecular structure huh. as how they get there. And as a result, once we know more about it, we're kind of shooting in the dark right now therapeutically on that. At least that's my observation in terms of sex differences. But once we understand how the biology is different, even though you're getting a similar output where both the man and the woman have substance use disorder, um, we might find that different pharmacological interventions will mm -hmm. be appropriate for uh, men and women. Okay. And so that, that I think that's that's where we're at right now, I don't think that you can definitely go in and say, yes, this is women do this and men do that. There are sociological differences. And so right. there are tendencies for how women might become addicted versus how men might become addicted. Certain things will be more stressful for women. Other things will be more stressful for men and stress and substance use disorder um, go hand in hand, just like we talked about with PTSD and uh, substance use disorder. Okay. So those differences are being studied, and those are very useful for cognitive behavioral therapy, um, that you might treat a man and a woman differently in terms of the way you're going to teach them to approach their substance use disorder and try to get a handle on it. But um, pharmacologically, and getting drugs to assist in that process, um, we're, I think we're still in the early stages. Okay. Promising, though. Promising opportunities. Yeah, no, no. It's all promising. It's it a, as I started off this whole uh, podcast, the brain is so much more complicated than anybody ever imagined that it was. The deeper we dig into it, I've spent almost 40 years as a neuroscientist thinking when I started that I would have solved these things by now. And as we develop better tools to try to understand a problem that we have where our ideas about the brain aren't correct, uh, we discover that they're definitely not correct. And we there's a whole world of the way the brain is working, the interactions between molecules, between circuits, that we hadn't imagined and that we weren't actually looking at it correctly. And so this is, um, I, I like to think of it as you wouldn't jump in the space shuttle and go colonize the moons of Saturn. That's not the right technology. We don't have the knowledge to do it. 
We're just not there yet. And understanding how the brain creates complicated behavior and understanding how those behaviors can then go awry and create what we call psychiatric disorders is, you know, to, uh, the full understanding is kind of like colonizing the moons of Saturn. Take time. A, a full cure is going, I believe, will take decades. Will we be able to ameliorate with better and better and closer approximations of what's actually going on and how we would intervene? Absolutely. And can we build a better infrastructure until such time as we have good biological um, tools that with strong biological rationales? Absolutely, we could have a better uh, treatment infrastructure. There's no question about it. It's just what we choose to do. And then those can be incorporating these new approaches as they, they, they come out. But it's, you can see it with all, almost with all brain disorders, really. There are advances and then there are cures and cures are very hard to come by when it comes to the brain. Advances in treatment are coming up all the time and it's very promising and nobody should lose hope. And I, I do believe that we'll get better and better handles, but the absolute, you know, snap your fingers cure is, I'm, I'm afraid is, is a little ways off. I, I actually think that there is no more powerful statement than what you just made. It puts us in a realistic place. It offers us opportunities and uh, tools uh, for the future. And that's why you do the research you do, and you've been doing it for 40 years. Um, I applaud your passion and your commitment to this. It is a human issue that <clears throat> may not have a cure, as you say, but definitely has um, uh, some problem solving as part of it. And I think the whole reason we do these podcasts is because we understand how important the research is, the basic research translated into clinical research that can make a difference in a person, in a community, in a world. And I, I really can't thank you enough. You have all these honors and accolades and there's a reason for it. It's because you have given your heart and soul to this problem. And, um, you know, we're the luckier for it at the Medical University of South Carolina, which is why neurosciences is one of the top departments in the country uh, because of the work you do, Dr. Kalivas. Um, can you tell me just one more hopeful thought to leave us with as we move forward in this world? We're at a very odd place right now with our, with our nation and with the world, with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think a lot of people have, have lost the, the sense of flow that we have as a culture, that we actually are still evolving we're actually still learning about the world around us. And it's the science that is still going on and the science that will continue going on and the, the tr new treatments that are going to come out um, haven't stopped. And there is a very bright future. <clears throat> it's just not as easy as we thought it would be. But I, I'm firmly, when I see the progress that we've had over the last 40, 40 years, it's, it's phenomenal what we know now that we didn't know before. And there's no question in my mind 
that <clears throat> these psychiatric disorders, substance use disorder um, in particular, uh, will be a highly treatable disorder over the coming decade or so. Um, we're just, we're at a place where we're on the threshold, really. I described some of the new technologies at a basic level. I've described some of the new perspectives that have come out of knowledge in terms of how we might deal with substance use disorder. <clears throat> that's all new. And that's going to change the way we do things over the course of the next five years. And in the process of that change taking place, there'll be new observations and new discoveries. And we'll slowly but surely pick away at this, this horrible, this very tragic psychiatric disorder until it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and that's, that's what the, the new knowledge will do. And a society that is willing to use the new knowledge <clears throat> to change a little bit the way it thinks about things so that it can actually apply it and improve itself. That is a wonderful, hopeful thought, and we're going to hold you to it. <laughs> Thank you again to our guests, the distinguished university professor, Dr. Peter Kalivas, from the Department of Neurosciences here at the Medical University of South Carolina. Join us again next month. We're going to continue the discussion on the brain when we talk to some folks at, uh, um, in neuroscience on Alzheimer's disease. And from one of our uh, institutes, uh, the Zeon Institute, you'll hear more about that in our future podcast. Dr. Kalivas, our very best thanks to you for today and for your time and our uh, hope for continued success in the future. Thank you, Loretta. It's been a pleasure to be here. <laughs>